0: Our series, I started to say this summer, but now it's officially fall. I guess it's our fall series now, Spirit-Filled Family Living. And it's so important, and I I just can't stress enough the importance of having your home, your life, your marriage filled with the Spirit of God. And for those of you who have a a Spirit-Filled family, uh, you can attest to what I'm about to say. Uh, When your life is carnal, bad things just come out of nowhere. And there's a there's a downward spiral. But when your life is filled with the Spirit of God, when your family is filled with the Spirit of God, good things seem to come out of nowhere. There'll be situations that you'll look at and and you'll say, I I can't do anything about this. And the next thing you know, it'll change. It'll be that way with your marriage. And you just sort of throw up your hands and say, well, I've gone as far as I can go, but then something good will happen. Something will change positively in your partner or in you or with your children. You can think, well, this is just the way it's going to be. But then God will come and work. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit working in your life and your family and your marriage. And that's why I'm taking all this time uh, now, this fall and the past summer, to get you to think about the beauty and the importance of having God's Spirit filling your life and the lives of all your family members. When God's Spirit comes to work, good things. I say come out of nowhere, we know where they come from. James tells us they come from heaven, but it seems, on the, it seems just from the way that we look at life, it seems thing, like good things come out of nowhere. And that's the power and the beauty of this, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And now this morning, we're in a sermon called the Jesus Seeds Part 2. The Jesus Seeds Part 2. And the subtitle of today's message would be, The One or the Seed That Makes You Most Like Jesus. Just in case you weren't here last week, I need to take a moment to explain the title and also to get us caught up. That's one of the challenges that a pastor faces when he only preaches half a sermon and he has to come back and preach the next half the following week. Because I know that some of you weren't here last week and you didn't get the first half of it. And even for those of us who were here last week, a lot of waters passed under the bridge in the last seven days. So I want to take just a few moments. Uh, to talk about where we were last week and and how we got here. But, and possibly, there's someone here who's this is the first time you've ever uh, heard a message from this series. All summer, we were working on a principle from the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 8, where the Bible says, The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Every child of God, as we've said time after time this summer, has two natures. You have the old Adamic uh, fleshly nature that you were born with, which is predisposed toward doing wrong. Uh, No one had to teach us to lie. No one had to teach us to cheat. No one had to teach us to be rebellious. That's just part of our, our old Adamic nature. When I say Adamic, I mean we inherited it from Adam. When we got saved, God did not take that away from us. It's that flesh, the carnal nature that Paul talks about in Romans 6 through 8. But we also got a new nature in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came in to live in our lives. And there always is a contrast. Galatians tells us that. There is a contrast, a war going on, James says between the old person and the new person. And that war is internal. It's going on inside of us. And so every, every thought you think, every word you say, every action you perform, every attitude that you hold is a seed. And you are either sowing toward the old person, the old nature, or you're sowing toward the spirit of God. If you sow to the old nature, we've learned this week after week, there will be a harvest of death. Even if you're God's child, if you sow to the old nature, there'll be a harvest of death. And it's not God punishing you. It's not you're being persecuted. It's not that you married the wrong person. It's not that you just got, had your kids switched at the hospital. It's just the fact that you've been sowing to the old nature and you're going to have a harvest of death. That's an axiom. That's just part of God's universe. But the good news is if you take the thoughts and the actions and the attitudes uh, of your life and you sow those to the Holy Spirit, following the, the Spirit in your life, there will be a harvest of life and nothing or no one can take that away from you. That is a promise of God. And we've been looking at three instructions for the child of God that are relational to what I just shared with you. These are all in Ephesians chapter four. And by the way, I'm going to spend a lot of time the next few weeks in Ephesians four, five, and six. Why? Because in those three chapters especially, we find a lot about the filling of the Holy Spirit not only what the filling of the Spirit is, but how it relates to our everyday lives. You know, of course, that the chapter numbers were not put there by the Holy Spirit. Men added the chapter titles, the numbers, to help us to to navigate through the Scripture. They're beneficial, but they're not Spirit-inspired. You do know that. So when you're in the book of Ephesians, we're in a body of text, and surely we're in three chapters, no doubt about that, but it all fits together because this is about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the last part of chapter 4, God's children receive three commands. And again, that are relational to what I just talked about. The first command is to put off the old self. What is the old self? It's the flesh, that Adamic nature that I just shared with you a moment ago, that part of us, that inherent part of us that's predisposed to or doing wrong. We are to put that off. God didn't say he would do it. He didn't say, wait for God to do it. He said to me and to you, you put it off. You get rid of it. That old seed, the bad seed, The stuff that is wrong. And there's a list of that also in the the book of Galatians and the book of Ephesians. God says, put it off. And then the second command is to be made new. And as I've been preaching to you, this is so wonderful. Accept who God says you are. See, we, we started out life being identified by the old self, the old person. We were identified by that part of us as predisposed toward doing wrong. That is how we accepted our first identity. But that's why Jesus came along and said, you must be born again and become a new person. Now, here's the challenge. When you are born again, you still have that old person. The challenge is to believe you are who God says you are. That's the challenge because see, we still live in that old flesh and we still contend with it. But the beginning of the spirit-filled life is to accept by faith who God says you are. Remember, the Bible tells us that God calls the things that that are, are not as if they were. God looks at us and says this. God says you are his child, that you are an overcomer, that you have the faith which gives you the victory. God says your sins are washed away. Therefore, you are purified in God's sight. Whenever God opens the books of heaven and finds your name, the record of Christ is down below that. You start by believing who you are in Jesus Christ. If you let the devil, he will give you an identity. He will point out your faults. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. But God is not the accuser of the brethren. God is the transforming one. He changes us. And then the challenge for us is to begin to believe who we are in God. Now, I can look at my life and find all kinds of failure, but I open the pages of God's Word, and I discover that I'm God's child. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I'm an overcomer through the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to live forever, and that I'm going to walk on streets of gold someday. And when I read the Word of God, I accept who I am in God. That's the second part of this, being made new. And now, here is the practical aspect of that, the third command, putting on the new self. If I am who God says I am, then I am to live like God says uh, I should live because that's, that's who I am in Jesus Christ. My identity dictates to me how I should live. So there are the three commands, put off the old self, accept your new identity, and then put on the new person. Um, I wanna just take a moment, and say something. And I'm, I'm, I said this in the early service and I was nervous when I said it then and I'm nervous when I say it now because someone may take me wrongly, but it's so important I'm willing to risk that. In our kinds of churches, we, without wishing to perhaps, we emphasize the crisis aspect of Christian change. And by crisis, I don't mean a catastrophe. I mean just a moment in time where there is a change. And that, that's well and good because there are certain things that happen in the crisis. We accept Jesus Christ. That is a moment of change. There are times when we rededicate our lives in the church service. That's a moment of change. There are times when we, we make a decision to do something for the lord based on what the holy spirit is telling us to do that's a crisis moment but i'm afraid that sometimes we've gotten the idea that if there's ever going to be any positive change in our lives it's going to be through one of these crises how many of you have been to church camp and you've gone to one of those services in church camp and you have this crisis moment but six weeks later you're right back where you were before See, here's what you need to understand and what I need to understand. Crisis moments are important and they can be defining moments. But the truth of the matter is the Christian life is not going to be one in the crisis moments. Not in the crisis, but in the process. It's in that day by day living for God. Day by day doing the right thing, thinking the right thing. It's planting seed moment after moment, day by day month by month, year by year, a matter of doing the right things. And I just wanna say that to some of you because you keep waiting for this crisis moment. Man, God's gonna stir me in church and I'm gonna walk forward and have this transforming moment. Maybe it will happen, but for most of us, the victory will be found in the tough moments in life, just doing the right thing and thinking the right thing and saying the right thing. And just layer by layer, situation by situation, living and thinking and doing what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. And the victory may not come like a bolt out of the blue, but it may come like the dawn. That is how most of us will gain the victory. And I I preach these things, and again, I sure hope I didn't leave anyone with the wrong impression because there are wonderful moments in our lives that are transforming. But the victory, I believe, is found in stretching out the Christian life. Now, last week, we began to look at what we call the Jesus Seeds. We've been talking about planting seeds, planting good seeds, but at the end of Ephesians chapter four, there were three seeds that we call the Jesus seeds. And why do we call them that? Well, I I shared with you last week, we call them the Jesus seeds because number one, he talked about them all the time. Read the Sermon on the Mount, read the Olivet Discourse, read the teachings of Jesus, the parables, and you will discover he talked about these seeds all the time. Number two, he planted them more than anybody else. And number three, When you plant the Jesus seeds, you are more like Jesus than in any other time. Boy, I'm saying controversial stuff, and I know what I'm about to say may even be more controversial than what I said a moment ago. We have, in our generation, achieved a sort of pseudo-sophistication in the American church. We have been blessed with good Bible teaching. There are a plethora of Christian books. Christians have been lulled into a sort of pseudo-sophistication because we know so much. But friend, let me tell you something. You're not like Jesus Christ because you know so much about the Bible and you beat all your friends at Bible Trivia. You're not most like Jesus Christ because you have this wealth, you have this wealth of Bible knowledge that you've accumulated by reading and studying and all that. All those things are, be, are to be commended. But I'm running into Christians all the time who seem to know a ton about the things of the Bible, the minutia of the Bible, but a lot of them don't even know the first thing about planting these seeds that we're talking about. Maturity in the Christian life is not the stuff you know. It's in your ability to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus did not say that he wanted his disciples to go start universities. There's nothing wrong with starting university. But they were to be followers of Jesus Christ and to go out and make more followers of Jesus Christ. So what I'm trying to tell you is just because you and I may know a lot about the Bible, we may be able to answer a lot of our friends' questions until we start planting these Jesus seeds. We really have not gotten where we need to be. So it's a challenge for us this morning. It's a challenge for me. You're most like Jesus when you plant these seeds. Now, I know I'm taking a little time in review, but as I said a moment ago, the challenge for me is to go back and pick up what we got last week and put it together with what we're going to learn today. So if you'll grant me just a few moments, we'll review. Just for a moment, we'll review. What did we learn last week? First thing we learned, before we can plant the Jesus seeds, we have to get rid of some bad seeds. So then, let's read the verse again. This is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You can't plant the Jesus seeds when these seeds are present in your life. First seed you have to get rid of is bitterness. Bitterness. How can you be like Jesus if you're bitter? The Lord Jesus was not bitter. Remember, he was the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do while they were crucifying him. Our Lord was tender and gracious and compassionate with people. So if you're bitter today, you can't be like Jesus. That's the worst part of it. The second categorization of of bad seed there is rage and anger. Rage and anger. You can't be like Jesus if you're filled with rage. You can't be like Jesus if you're filled with with anger, even if it's an anger that manifests itself in a form of depression. And then brawling and slander. Brawling there, remember the word brawling was a colorful word that means to shriek like a raven. Screaming, yelling. How can you be like Jesus if you're screaming and yelling at your husband or wife or children? If there's yelling and screeching going on, that's nothing like Jesus there. And slander. That's just saying bad things about people either to their face or behind their back. And then malice, that's just bad acting. All, those, all these things we have to get rid of before we can sow the seed that makes us like Jesus. And then we begin to look at the first two out of three Jesus seeds. We looked at kindness. You remember kindness is that soft touch, that, that kind, that soft touch, not heavy handedness. And then compassion, that's the heart that, that cares and manifests its concern. And Again, I know we've taken a few precious moments of today's sermon to cover old ground, but I ask you, don't we need this to be repeated to us over and over again? I mean, I preached it last week, and there were times when I had to slap myself on the wrist and say, remember the Jesus seeds, the Jesus seeds. Now, this morning, we come to the seed that makes you most like Jesus. When you plant this seed, you're more like Jesus than at any other time of your life. What is the Jesus seed. Listen to the text again from Ephesians 4 verse 32. Be kind, we've seen that before, and compassionate, that too, to one another. Look at this. Forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. Now the Holy Spirit is so wise. He's perfectly wise. He knows us. He didn't stop the verse right there. See, if it'd been me if I'd been writing, I might have stopped the verse right there. You know, just be kind and compassionate to to one another forgiving each other. I might have stopped there. But the Holy Spirit knows us. And he knows that we're not really wanting, inclined to forgive. So he tacked something on. He said, "Forgiving each other just as Christ in Christ God forgave you." <laughs> wow. The seed, church, that makes you most like Jesus is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Before we go any further, though, I want you to think about the three Jesus seeds that we've read and notice notice the ascending level of challenge that we find. It starts with kindness. Hey, folks, kindness isn't too hard. Remember? We talked about that last week. Anyone can have the soft touch, it's not hard to be kind. And then you go to compassion. See, kindness doesn't cost anything. Compassion costs something. Like the Good Samaritan, when you get off your beast and you put some hurting person on your animal, when you leave someone at the end and you're responsible for their care and concern, that costs something. But I got to tell you what I've discovered in pastoring all these years, I have found a lot of Christians who are kind, they don't have any problem with that. And they're compassionate. They care about hurting people. They minister to others. They give to world evangelism. They're kind. They're compassionate. But boy, this forgiveness thing is harder. Because with forgiveness, someone... Listen. With forgiveness, somebody has taken something away from us. Someone has inflicted some pain. And by definition, our forgiveness, unforgiveness, states that it hasn't been resolved. Forgiveness is difficult. Now... Listen to me this morning, please. There are eight facts that you need to know about forgiveness. And I know because you have your bulletin before, you're going to have to write pretty quickly on these. But I want to give you eight things that you need to know about forgiveness. There are probably others, but these eight will keep us busy for a good while. Here's the first one. And this, we're just going to start from the beginning and work our way up to understanding forgiveness. People are going to hurt you. (laughs) Let's just begin with that. People are going to hurt you. It is going to happen. You say, Pastor Hoover, I, I have unforgiveness because someone has hurt me. Well, just by making that statement, we sound surprised. But we shouldn't be surprised. People are going to hurt you. Listen, let me just say this to you. If you know me long enough, if you and I are friends, if you know me long enough, I'm going to hurt you. I don't want to, but I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I still have that old nature, and I still struggle with that. I'm trying to put it off, trying to accept my identity, and to, to put on the new person, but I still have that old person. And so if you're a close enough friend of mine, at some point, I'm not gonna want to, but I'm gonna hurt you. And you're gonna be hurt by others. You're gonna be hurt by your wife. You're gonna be hurt by your husband. You're gonna be hurt by your children. You're gonna be hurt by your parents. I don't mean physically, I just mean your spirit's gonna be grieved and hurt. People are going to hurt you. It is going to happen. Someone could say, I don't don't have to listen to this sermon and blow this off. No, you can't blow it off because you are gonna be in this arena. You are in it because people are going to hurt you. Don't be surprised. Don't feel like you've been singled out among the 6 million people in the world because you are going to be hurt. Number two, and you can tell I've chosen real sophisticated language here. Even good people can still behave pretty lousy, right? I was trying to find some other word for it. Cruddy came to mind. Even good people. Why? I just gave you the reason. Because even good people still have an old nature. I mean, even the best people in this church still have a sin nature. I hear this all the time. People say, oh, and I'm sure that people probably said about Messiah, I tend to hear it more about other churches, but people say, oh, I was hurt so bad in a church situation, or I was hurt in a church situation. You know why, why why that knocks people out of the saddle so much? They come in with expectations that everybody in the church is perfect. But we still have our sin natures, right? You're going to get hurt in a church. You get hurt in a family. That's just a fact of life. Even good people. I've I've discovered that through the years. Even the very best people will still hurt you. And that leads me to the third fact that we, we need to understand. The deepest hurt exists where there has been the deepest trust. If you have great trust... If you believe in someone's integrity, if you count on that person, when that person lets you down, the hurt is deeper, and you may have a greater challenge with forgiveness. for instance, let me just back up for a moment. If you think someone is a liar, when you get lied to by that person it doesn't hurt you because you expected that person to lie to you if If you expect someone to be your friend and uh, and that person lets you down, then it hurts. On the other hand, if if you have a a so-called friendship with someone, you know that person's a cheat and a liar and, and dishonest. When that person lets you down, the hurt's not very big because you expected it from that person. I'm saying it has to do with their expectation here. And where there is the deepest trust, often there is the deepest hurt. And where there is the deepest hurt, we have the greatest challenge with forgiveness. So then let us go now to the fourth fact. What is unforgiveness? what is, I mean, when when, when someone has hurt you, it's difficult sometimes to assign definition to this stuff. What, 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 what exactly is going on if I don't forgive you or if you don't forgive me? Not forgiving, not forgiving is like holding an invoice, charging the guilty party for their wrongdoing. That is probably the best definition I can give you of unforgiveness. If I don't forgive someone, what I am doing, I am holding an invoice that says, you owe me. Let me give you fact number five. The message of unforgiveness is, you must pay me for the damage you have done to me. I am holding an invoice, and I'm not going to let you go until you pay me for the damage that you have done for me. So what is unforgiveness? It's holding an invoice and saying, I'm not going to let go of the invoice until you pay. Number six, do you want to forgive? You say, Pastor, I, 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 you know, I'm going to forget. Well, make sure you understand what forgiveness is. Number six, true forgiveness is tearing up once and for all the invoice. The invoice. True forgiveness is tearing up the invoice and saying, you do not owe me anymore. There is no longer any debt. I have torn it up. Whatever you did to me, However you hurt me, regardless of how much I trusted you, I tear up the invoice. You don't owe me anything anymore. For what you said, the bill is is forgotten. For what you did, the bill is torn up. The invoice is torn up. You don't owe me anymore. So whenever you see me, you don't have to think about that. When I see you, I'm not going to think about it anymore because I have torn up the invoice. And that leads me to fact number seven, because there's someone who will say, well, Pastor Hoover, I'm not about to tear up the invoice, because if I did, I'd let the person off the hook. Well, let me ask you a question. Think again. Who are you letting off the hook when you forgive? Because number seven, often the greatest release is felt by the one tearing up the invoice. You say, Pastor, I have that person handcuffed in my mind. That person is handcuffed to me, and that person can't get away. Listen, if they're cuffed to you, are you not cuffed to them? I've discovered, I have forgiven people that still dislike me greatly. But the joy for me is I'm not bound to them anymore. They don't owe me. God bless them. Go on, do other things. You know, even the unsaved world understands this. Even... It wouldn't even take a safe person to recognize the benefit there. Corporations all over the country write off bad debt. They're just not going to get paid. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to be part of their books anymore. They just write it off because they don't want to deal with it. And if it can even make sense in that arena, how much more should it make sense in the arena of the Christian life? I'm preaching to someone here today, and someone has hurt you, and you hold on to that. That invoice stays in your desk. Maybe you have it at the bottom of the desk. But if you would tear that up, it's it's not just letting them go. It's letting yourself go. And then number eight, and I just have this in here because the Holy Spirit had it in the last part of the verse. The ultimate forgiveness took place when Jesus tore up the invoice for your sins. Do we understand that today? the ultimate forgiveness took place when Jesus Christ tore up the invoice for your sins and my sins. Now there's more to forgiveness than I've given you, but I think those will keep us busy for a while. Now at the end of all that, someone could say, well, Pastor Hoover, it's all well and nice. You preach this sermon on forgiveness, but I mean, really I've got somebody in my life that I just can't afford to forgive. What they did to me is just too bad. and The hurt's still too deep. And I just am not ready to forgive them. After all, how bad can it be? It's not like getting drunk. Oh, it's not like committing adultery or blaspheming God. How serious can it be? I can still come to church. I can still teach a class. I can still sing in the choir. I can still do all these Christian things and I don't have to forgive it. And by the way, nobody sees it. Nobody smells it on my breath. It doesn't make me stagger around or drive in an erratic fashion. I can still hold on to this unforgiveness. Pastor, how serious can it be? Well, the answer is it can be very serious. Let me share with you. The startling things that the Bible says about the importance of forgiveness. The Bible has some very surprising, startling things to say about the importance of forgiving people. Let me give you the big one right out of the box. Our being forgiven, God forgiving us, is directly related to the way that we forgive others. This is found several times in the Gospels. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, to that person who would say, Pastor Hoover, I can't forgive, could I ask you, can you afford not to forgive? Can you afford it? I hope you're a lot better person than I am, because I can tell you today, I can't afford for the Father not to forgive my sins. Let me give you another one. Forgiveness affects our praying, our prayer life. In Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus said, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. So, I mean, think about that. Here we are. We're praying. We're, we're praying in church today. We're praying at home, praying at night, praying with our wives, praying with our children, Praying in the car on the way to work. Here we are, we're praying. But what is God saying? God's saying, wait a minute. When you pray, forgive. Let me give you a paraphrase Mark eleven twenty five. 25. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against. In effect, what is happening here is when we go in to see God, if we don't have forgiveness in our heart, we get kept in the waiting room. Now, I, I know what it's like preaching in in America in 2002. I, I know that someone is back there saying, Pastor, you've gone too far this morning to suggest that my loving Heavenly Father would turn me off until I forgive someone. Pastor, I just don't believe a Heavenly Father who loves me would turn a deaf ears to my prayer just because I don't treat someone else right. Friend, I didn't tell you the half of it. Remember, we're talking about the family husband's all antenna up right now, okay? If you want your prayers answered, you better have the antenna up this morning. First Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is a Bible concept. If the windows are dirty between ourselves and someone else, then the windows are dirty between us and God. Forgiveness is so important. In the few moments that's left of this message, I'd like to do what I did last week. Since we've called these the Jesus seed, I'd like to step out of the way for a moment and let Jesus talk to you. I want to give you Jesus' story. And you know how I am about favorites here, favorite songs and favorite verses. This is probably my favorite story that Jesus told. Let me read it to you. Matthew 8, 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven. Now, I think about this because, you know, with Peter, one of the things that when I think about Peter, he's a whole lot like me. And I have a lot of ideas when Peter talks, what he's up to. Peter said, Lord, if somebody sins against me, do I forgive seven times? Is it up to seven times that I forgive them? Now, the rabbis in that day taught three times and Jesus had been teaching and Peter had been listening to him teach about forgiveness. So Peter's asking this question. He's saying, "Lord." Do I forgive up to seven times? But like I say, I think I know how Peter's thinking. Peter isn't wanting to know how many times he needs to forgive. What he's wanting to know is, Lord, when can I stop forgiving and bust him in the mouth? <laughs> Not how many times do I get to forgive. But how many times do I have to forgive before I can hit them? Seven now, I don't know who Peter was looking at when he said that. He's probably looking at one of the other disciples who've been annoying him. And the Lord said, well, 490 times. Well, quite honestly, if you try to forgive someone 490 times, you've long since quit keeping count. My guess is if you forgive someone 10 times or 15 times, you quit keeping count. Because it's not about judgment, it's about release. It's about forgiveness. But now Jesus didn't stop there because he went on to tell this story. And I love this story. And I just want to read it to you and, and get your thinking on this this morning. The Lord said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you. Let me say that again. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. I I won't insult your intelligence by telling you the story that you just read. But let me just give you a few accents. There is a servant here who makes a denarius a day, who is called in to account for a debt that he owes his king. I calculated this one day with the price of gold and the weight of a talent, and as near as I can come up with it, he owed his king, are you ready for this, $5 billion. Now, how can a man who makes a denarius a day wind up with $5 billion of debt? He either managed to run up a lot of credit cards, or he broke something very expensive. I don't know what happened. But he wound up owing $5 billion. And when he gets before the king, the king says, all right, just pay me and you can go. (laughs) How's the guy who makes a denarius a day, how's he going to pay $5 billion of debt? He can't. But he does something very irrational. He falls down before the king and he says, please, if you will have patience with me, I will pay you everything that I owe and that was irrational it was facetious it was ridiculous because if that man had worked every day for the rest of his life he could not have covered the interest payment for one day it was irrational it was an unpayable debt but the king was somebody very unusual he was a merciful king and the king said i'll tell you what i'll do i'll just tear up the invoice you're free now, I, you know, I've preached to you all these years. You know, I, my, I get my, my, my imagination runs away with me. I, I see this situation. I'm in the mind of this guy as he's just been forgiven $5 billion of debt. He was going to be sold as a slave. His wife was going to be sold as a slave. His boys, his kids were going to be sold as slaves. Everything he had was going to be liquidated so the king might recover some part of the, of the assets this man had borrowed. And now he's running down the steps of the palace. He doesn't owe anything. Now, listen, let me tell you, if somebody came to you and said, I'm going to pay off your mortgage, your car payment, and all your credit cards, wouldn't you be pretty excited about that? And it's probably short of $5 billion. Amen? Little anyway. I mean, that would excite you. But this guy, $5 billion, he was going to go to be a slave. He would never see his wife again, never see his kids again. They would be slaves. They would feel the lash of the whip. But now he runs down the steps of the palace, and he is a free man out of debt. But he sees a guy that he works with. He says, hey, didn't I loan you some money the other day? And he did, $44. Didn't I loan you some money the other day? Yeah. Well, hey, pay me back. I don't have it on me today, but if you'll just wait, if you just have a little patience with me, I'll pay you back everything that I owe you. And he could have. But this servant who had been forgiven $5 million debt, he wasn't interested in forgiving that day. Here's what he did. He had this guy, there was no bankruptcy in those days. He had this guy thrown into prison until he paid the $44 that he owed. Well, this got around the office, and the co-workers went to the boss. And they said, you know that guy you forgave $5 billion debt? You know what he did to somebody who owed him $44? And they told him, and you talk about angry. The king was furious. He said, "Find that old boy. And threw him in prison, not to be a slave. Listen, not to be a slave, but to be tortured. You ready to write? We're going to, go, we're going to go to work with the symbolism here because our Lord's not telling the story for nothing. Got your pen or pencil? The king is God. Number two, the great unpayable debt, that $5 billion, that is your sin and my sin. When we kneel before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to straighten out my life. That's as irrational as that guy who said, I will pay you back everything I owe you. For somebody out here saying, well, pastor, I'm I'm doing the best I can to get to heaven. That's as irrational as this guy saying, I'll pay you back. Because you can't pay back God. Even if you decided to live for God the rest of your life, what would you do about yesterday's sin? And then you can't stop sinning. See, sin is an unpayable debt. That's why you have to be born again. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, that's what you need to do today because nothing else works. Baptism, you just go down to a dry center and come up a wet center. Joining a church, that won't save you. You have an unpayable debt. That unpayable debt is your sin. Number three, the plea for mercy is our cry to God for salvation. When this first servant, when he, when he pleaded for the king for mercy, that is tantamount to you and me crying out asking God for salvation. Number four, the king's total forgiveness is our salvation. Listen, what happened was, when that man asked for forgiveness, the king tore up the invoice. And that's what happened when you and I came to Jesus Christ. All our sins... Everything that we had done against God, all the books, all the records of every sin that we ever had committed, it was an invoice in heaven. But when you and I came before God, God just took the invoice and tore it up and tossed it in the deepest sea. The king's total forgiveness is our salvation. And let us continue on. Our being forgiven, by the way, I should have done that, I tore up my notes, isn't that terrible? <laughs> Let me go to number five. In fact, I'll get you guys just to put them on the screen for me, okay? Thank you. The tiny debt of the fellow servant is the harm someone does to us. After we have been forgiven so much, whatever harm someone does to us, that's what the symbolism of What Jesus is talking about here. Let's go to the next one. The first servant's harassment of his fellow servant is our unforgiveness. When that guy found the guy who owed him $44 and had him tossed into prison, that is the same thing that happens after we have been forgiven so much and we don't forgive someone else. One more. What's the torture? Well, the torture is, well, the torture that we go through when we don't forgive. That's the story. Somebody can say, well, Pastor, <laughs> I, I'm not going to forgive, because if, 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 if I forgive, I'm going to let that person go. Friend, let me tell you something. When you forgive, you are more like Jesus Christ than any other moment of your life. When you don't forgive, you are the one who is going through the torture. I know today that I'm talking to somebody here who would say, Pastor, I have a problem. Someone has done something to hurt me, and that person's not even alive anymore. Or maybe there's someone who has hurt you, and you you can't even get to them. Let me encourage you to do something. Just sit down in a chair and put a chair across from you, and in your mind, put the person who has hurt you. And I know that that's not the actual person. But in your mind, see the person who has hurt you. And you say to them, you know, here's what you did, and you hurt me. But by the grace of God, what I'm doing right now is I'm tearing up the invoice. And by God's grace, I free you from the debt that you owe me. And once and for all, leave it there and leave it buried. God can give you the grace to do that. It will transform you. It will transform your life. Let's stand together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for what we've learned today. You have been so good to us. You have forgiven us of such great debt. And then, Lord, sometimes we get wrapped around the axle of life when someone does something to hurt us. Help us to remember, Lord, that no matter what anyone does to us, not that we minimize it, but it's tiny in contrast to what we have done to sin against you. And now, Father, I just ask in the name of Jesus that you would help us. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to see what we could be if we would plant this Jesus seed.